difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome back to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and the way it's shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Tasha Robinson, here again with... Keith Phipps, Scott Tobias, and Genevieve Kosky. On last week's show, we talked about John Sayles' magical realist fable, The Secret of Her Own Inish. We initially came to that film because we were thinking about the fairy tale tradition of animals taking human form and vice versa, and the way folklore stories use that image to consider the connections between humans and the natural world, both how close we are to it and how deliberately we distance ourselves from it. And the reason we were thinking about those topics was because of Wolfwalkers, the new film from the Irish animation house Cartoon Saloon. Wolfwalkers follows a young British girl named Robin Goodfellow, with all obvious nods to Shakespeare, as she and her widowed father come to an Irish town where he's been tasked with ridding the local woods of wolves so the local peasantry can feel safe. This brings Robin into conflict with Maeve, a wild child in the woods who becomes a wolf when she sleeps. Maeve's mother, also a wolfwalker, has gone to sleep and won't wake up, which is preventing Maeve and her pack of wolves from leaving the forest to escape the hunt. Befriending her puts Robin in conflict with her own father. With her father's overseer, the British Lord Protector, ruling the town and trying to bring the local wilds under his control, and with nature itself as she tries to fight what she's becoming after Maeve bites her. Cartoon Saloon's latest, directed by Tom Moore and Ross Stewart, follows in the patterns of Moore's previous films, The Secret of Kells and Song of the Sea, in presenting a rich, dense, visual tapestry full of patterns and colors. Like those films, it draws in the history and fables of Ireland. We'll be right back to talk Wolfwalkers and how all these things connect with John Sayles' Secret of Rowan Inish after this. She's one of them Wolfwalkers. Wolfwalkers? The ones that can talk to wolves with some wild magic. You can come out now. We can smell you, you stick. You're a uh, wolf walker. You're a wolf when you sleep. <gasps> a girl when you're awake. <laughs> Robin! Something's happened to me. Yeah, I can see that. It's flipping great. You're a wolf now. Be a wolf! So, I, if you hated this film, I don't know if we can be friends. <laughs> I'm just, I'm just going to say it. Uh, anybody not just taken by the visuals, at least, of this film? No. Yeah. Genevieve, <laughs> <really well. laughs> as I'm looking at you, you've got a virtual background uh, yeah. from this movie. So it would be hard to believe if you didn't, didn't care for it. I think maybe a, a more appropriate question for me is how many times did I sob during this movie? And the answer would be a lot. A whole lot. Yeah. This film <laughs> um, is so emotional. It's yeah, so and, emotional. Well, and it's a it's a very visceral type of beauty that's on display here. And when I cried, it, it had less to do with anything that was happening in the story than with just uh, what I always call spectacle tears. The sequence of Robin and Maeve as wolves running through the night and following the sense. I mean, like that's one of the best scenes of the year to my mind. And this film is one of my my favorite films of, of the year, no question. Little hearts popped off my head the entire time I was watching. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I really love 
every movie that Cartoon Saloon has done. Like there was very slim chance of me not enjoying this film. I know I've recommended Breadwinner on this, and I think I've maybe recommended Song of the Sea, or maybe maybe you did as well. I definitely recommended Song of the Sea at one point. Yeah. So like I was going into this movie with you know high expectations, and it, it certainly met them, but it also met them in a way that was a little different from what I was expecting. Like this is certainly the level of animation quality wise that I expect, but it's also not exactly like any of the Cartoon Saloon's previous films in how it looks, you know, and we can get more into specifics, but I'll let others, you know, say how much they love this film first. <laughs> I, I liked it a lot. I, this is actually, to my shame, it's the first Cartoon Saloon film I've seen. So I, I have some catching oh, up wow. to do. Wow. Yeah, I don't know why. I don't know why. But um but no, I, th- I thought it was completely engrossing as a story. And, and as you said, it's, it's so emotional. I mean, on a really cut to the heart level, I mean, you know, uh, mothers and daughters and parents uh, separated from their Just children. Family and, packs. Yeah. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yeah and, 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 you know, permanent separation and, and extinction and things like that. It's, it's, uh, it's, you know, the stakes are very high in this film. It's, it's got like, it's got little moments of whimsy. It's, it's charming in that way, but it is, um, it never really lets you forget how much danger everyone's in at all times here. So how how did Hannah take it? You said that this was a hit with her where Secret of Roman Inish wasn't. But I, I mean, this this film feels maybe a little scary for a kid and maybe a little a little too heartbreaking for a kid. Uh, what did what did she think about it? No, I was right on her level. She also loves wolves. I mean, she's, it's, it's her, <laughs> she's for like we're like in year one and a half of wolf obsessions. You know, she's kind of like <laughs> moved from one animal to another, but definitely settled on wolves. Uh, and so this was that that was delight, uh, delightful to her. And she, you know, uh, she handles some pretty intense stuff emotionally uh, in, in films. So th- that wasn't really a problem for her. I also wonder if maybe it's, it, we talked about Rona Nish playing differently for grownups than for children. I think it's one of those films that maybe you're going to realize just how, oh, you know, it may hit you a little harder as a grown up than it would as a child. Yeah, I, I mean, I saw this film. I've seen it twice, and, and I saw it with my children the first time, and then I saw it with my my older child the second time because she was so enraptured by it. I mean, both my daughters loved it, and uh, and I think you know one of the things we have been doing on family movie night is watching a lot of Miyazaki films. So I think there is that intuitive connection to storytelling like this and animation style like this. In fact, that my eldest daughter really loves kind of a hand drawn style over computer animated like she like she just she, this has what, like the pencil line the, the pencil I know. I mean, like, 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 like she's <laughs> just like so every image she's like commenting on how beautiful it looks so and i'm like isabel come on now we don't talk during <laughs> movies um i don't say I, I don't scold her for that but yeah i just i was also just overwhelmed by the emotion in this movie it is not a film that has a lot of comic relief or tomfoolery but it is a film that has such strong feeling in the relationship between father and daughter and the relationship between these two friends who are worlds apart but then come together you know and then and then of course just the drama of this town being set against this peaceful <laughs> mystical group of a pack of wolves it's all very powerful and the sequence that you identified Genevieve is, is also the kind of the one that is just so soaring incredible that whatever the song is that they use for that mm-hmm. is great and I think it's called like score, running with wolves or yeah running yeah, with it's the like wolves. running with the wolves I think yeah so that that song here's a little piece of trivia for you is uh, by Aurora who is the oh, voice that goes yep. ah, <laughs> like 400 times in Frozen 2 hmm. um, that's that's okay. what her actual songs sound like. 
After the trailer, the song was heavily foregrounded in the trailer. And I went and looked up the song because I wanted to hear the rest of it. And it's interesting. The song itself reminds me, I actually thought I was listening to Florence and the Machine, which is a mm-hmm. band that I very much love that sounds a lot like this. That's the reason that I looked into it. And I was surprised to find that it was Aurora. But I was also surprised to find that when you listen to that song, you hear that chorus maybe twice. Whereas when you're watching the movie, you you just basically hear the chorus. There's a lot more to that song than what you hear in the movie. And I encourage people to go look it up. You can find it on YouTube. Just real quick, Scott, you mentioned sort of a, a lack of tomfoolery or, or humor in this film. I just want to mention Town Tasties. The whole Town Tasties <laughs> sequence. <Town> <laughs> and I think just sort of the whole first, not even first meeting, but as Robin and Maeve are sort of sniffing each other out, so to speak, I think you definitely get some, you know, nice, lighthearted childhood friendship energy there. That's you know, true. there's not jokes necessarily. There's a little slapstick in the Town Tasties sequence where they're stealing the food and her getting her crossbow back. But I take your point, but I don't think it's like a dour no. movie by any it's, means. It's not, well, there's, it's there's, not grimly humorless or anything, but it doesn't yeah. have anything that we'd recognize as, as modern humor. There's no, it's jo- there's there's no joy meta. In it, there's no winking right. at the camera. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, joy is an emotion too, and it, and it, is a, it, it can be an, a moving one in a context like this when you have these two girls who don't really have <laughs> friends. <laughs> you know, and They found each other and they form this extremely powerful intimate and mythical bond together that is transcendent and nothing either one of them might have thought possible and and uh the film really engages with that in such a profound and visually striking way and you know they have some very visceral reasons to bond in that they're both basically separated from their parents Robin's mother has died. Maeve's mother has gone away in a way that she can't understand or help. Robin's father is very much in the picture, but won't listen to her and keeps trying to change who she is and restrict her and turn her into a little house slave. Maeve's father is not at all in the picture. So there's just sort of this sense of the two of them being on their own as very young children and turning to each other for comfort and for affirmation and for just a basic understanding of like, you at least know who I am. My mother isn't here. My father won't listen to me and doesn't believe anything I say. But you at least see me for who I am. That's a, I would say a harsher assessment of Robin's father than I would I would necessarily um, I, I have. Thought, I, th- I thought her father was definitely an interesting character. I think he's definitely deserving of harshness, especially in the, you know, how he's originally presented to us. But also, like, there's a whole historical context at work in this film that we haven't really gotten into. And I think maybe we'll want to save that for connections, you know, as far as specifics. But, you know, this story takes place in Kilkenny in 1650 and the Lord Protector that is referenced over and over again is Oliver Cromwell who, if we're going by the timeline of history, you know, staged a a siege on Kilkenny mere months before (laughs) the events of this movie took place, you know. So Robin's father is a soldier in the conquest of Ireland, you know, and there's a whole 
thematic underpinning in this movie that, you know, has to do with like civilization versus nature and how Cromwell's forces are representative of that. And as a, well, first a hunter, then then a soldier in those forces, uh, so is her dad, an extension of that. So he's placed in conflict with Maeve and, and her mom and by extension, Robin. But I think sort of the arc he's given and the redemption he's given at the end is mostly earned. Mostly. <laughs> yeah, I'm um, certainly not saying that he's not an interesting character, yeah. or that he's not worthy of redemption. I I think it's fascinating that the film, his apotheosis is basically being able to admit that he's afraid. Mm-hmm. And he has many, many good reasons to be afraid, but it's not something we see adults doing in movies for children very often. Right. And in terms of historical context, you, it would almost be tempting to say uh, the symbolism is too neat in having Oliver Cromwell uh, uh, try to kill off the wolves of, of Ireland. It's just too, 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 it's just it's just too neat of a stand-in for the Irish culture. Except it really happened. I mean, yeah. it really it really was Cromwell's order that the mass extinction of Irish wolves that lasted about a hundred more years in Ireland after this, I believe. Uh, but it was Cromwell's doing that it really uh, was set into motion. I definitely have more I want to say about that. But before we do it, Tasha, you haven't gotten to say how much you love this film, but you really wanted to host this pairing. So I think that is probably, <laughs> yes. What if she hates it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know. I didn't really connect with it emotionally. I didn't really see the value of this. No, I mean, I don't need to gush about it. I think it's pretty clear. And I think you guys have said a lot of what there is to say about it. Like plot and emotion wise, I think I more admire it than completely falling into it uh, the way it sounds like uh, Genevieve did. But just in terms of the visuals, this movie is so visually dense. It's so rich. I feel like I need to watch it three more times just to get all of it into my eyes. Because, you know, the first time through there just there wasn't enough room in my eyes for all of it. (laughs) There's so much and like just the layers of it are so heavy the whole film despite the kind of the lightness and smallness of the characters and the extremity of the motion the the degree to which this film relies on everything being in motion all the time it still just has a like a palpable visual weight that i just find spectacular and fascinating in a way i feel like i need to see it again to reach that level of emotion you're talking about because i was so taken away by the the visual aspect of the movie. I don't know, sometimes when I'm um, reading comic books, graphic novels for the first time, I barely see the art because I'm focused on the words. Here, I feel like I could almost barely hear the words because I was focused on the art. It's such a beautiful movie. It's just so well composed. I mean, I want to be clear, my emotional reaction was very much tied to the visuals. Like I said, it, it was spectacle tears. Like I was reacting to the animation and, and the music. But you know, like you, my reaction to the story was secondary to my reaction to the visuals. And to get into some of the specifics of like what is so incredible here. Uh, one big thing that stood out to me was the contrast between the town and nature and the way that the town is all composed of these geometric shapes. It's very intricate um, and very cool to look at, but it all has almost like a blueprint quality to it. Whereas once you get outside the walls, everything is organic shapes. It's all undulating. Like it extends all the way to like Maeve's hair, this incredible, you know, mane that she has in contrast to like 
uh, when Robin is in the town and working in the scullery, she has on this like triangular wimple, you, you know, to like con- contain her hair. Like there's just all these little touches in the design that extend from sort of the the baseline themes of the film. And I also really liked how the wolves, the pack of wolves, were presented as almost like water. You know, they're like this undulating force. You know, they, they aren't really distinct from each other. They're just part of sort of the energy that's around Maeve at all times. And they sometimes just kind of like dissolve into this amorphous blob, but they always have this very specific energy. There's lots of stuff like that throughout the film. There's about a thousand things in this film that remind me very strongly of other films. And that treatment of the wolves is this sort of blob of of water that moves around like like a ghost. It, it It takes on shapes and you can see the individual shapes of wolves within it, but they don't matter because the they represent a pack rather than individual creatures. Mm-hmm. Reminded me so much of the this French movie, Ernest and Celestine, um, which oh, is another right. animated film I'm over the moon for and that I, I'm perpetually wanting more people to see. And that film is very sweet and very sentimental and in a way, almost kind of like Beatrix Potter, Tasha Tudor uh, kind of qualities to it. But it's also got big slapstick elements. And one of the elements is it's about a society of bears and a society a society of bears that lives on the surface and a society of rats that live below. And when the rats come up into the bear world, they all like bunch together for protection and turn into exactly this kind of like mm-hmm. shifting amorphous liquid blob uh, with a thousand heads and a thousand faces and no bodies. And it felt like a, a sort of callback in a way I found very comforting in a way. That's a, a much nicer reference point than where I went, which was Princess Mononoke. <laughs> oh, yeah, for sure. But this is a much more pleasant undulating force of nature. <laughs> <laughs> As undulating forces of nature go. One idea that I kind of wanted to, to loop back to, we moved away from, and I'm just going to uh, gracelessly push back towards <laughs> it, is as a non-parent, Scott and Keith, you're both kind of talking about how your kids took it and how this maybe is harder for parents to watch than for kids to watch. I'm wondering if kids maybe always feel a little at odds with their parents in terms of like wanting to do things and not being allowed to or having to do things that they don't want to do. And so the prospect of stories where kids are at odd with odds with their parents just feels like a natural extension of their life. Whereas watching this relationship as a father, where the father is misinterpreting the daughter and trying to force her into a life that she doesn't want, and that is extremely joyless, and refusing to listen to her when she says important things and not understanding her emotion, like all of these things, I would think maybe would come more naturally to kids and also be lower impact than they would to adult viewers. But maybe either of you could speak to that. I think it's more in a case of, I think when you're a kid watching these sort of things, this sort of, there's more of an, I think, I think you see things like drama and, you know, loss and in, in films as maybe a little more abstract and distant. I, I think the instinct is to think that it's going to hit kids harder, but I think sometimes it doesn't hit kids as hard as it does grownups. You know, the idea of being separated from your child forever is, you know, it feels a lot more real when, when you're an adult than it does as a, you know, if you're a kid who's had nothing but safety and security your whole life, you're probably not as, uh, the idea that being taken away is probably a little more distant. I don't know. Maybe that's just my read on it. What about you, Scott? 
I'm not sure. I mean, I you know, again, when we talk about Robin's father, I can <laughs> I should hope that I'm not the sort of person who doesn't listen to my kids and forbids them from doing anything and is harsh to them um and doesn't see them but but I can also identify with that base need to give them protection and in a, in a world as harsh as the one that's depicted here you can understand that instinct a little bit more even if the father here is ultimately in the wrong I think to uh we haven't gotten into the voice work here but i uh sean bean plays uh the, the the father and i think very well and i think this is an example of i actually think the the two girls are also very very well voiced but sean bean like he just like brings this sort of like baseline weariness to her dad that i think kind of informs his actions like it's not what he actually wants to be doing it's what he feels he should mm-hmm. be doing he is in over his head uh, as a, as a single dad and as a soldier in a new land and he doesn't know how to protect his daughter so he's just like defaulting to this be still, stay here, don't do anything, <laughs> you know, I don't do anything that I can't save you from. Because as we as is acknowledged later in the film, he's he's terrified. And I think that moment works because of that quality has been sort of imbued in Bill, which is her dad's name from the beginning through Sean Bean's characterization of him. Yeah. And, and I think that there's something to the end of the film too with regard to that character with regard to robin's father when he when he finally is in wolf form and his instinct is to leave the pack until he finally kind of gets invited back i mean Mm -hmm. there's this kind of a restoration of warmth and of family life and of happiness as a possibility for him that needs to be kind of you know, he needs to hear the invitation. It needs to be presented to him as a possibility because it's something he doesn't really know anymore. All he knows in this scenario is that they're in a, a tough spot and that they have to make the best of it. And his job is to keep his daughter safe and to do what is necessary for them to have what little life that they have. So again, you know, I get it. I get that he comes across as unduly harsh and not good at listening to his daughter's protestations, but I, I kind of get where he's coming from, you he know, emotionally. Well. It's hard to be a dad. It's hard to, you know, <laughs> it's hard to look after kids. I mean, I, I will say, to be quite frank, I was very annoyed by him for the first like half of the movie, like until it became a little clearer, you know, what was behind his actions and where the story went. But, you know, I, I definitely was exasperated by him in, mm-hmm. in the early going of the film, which I think is, you know, effective in terms of putting us in Robin's shoes. Although it's kind of exasperated by her, too. <laughs> like, uh, so I think She's maybe a the, lot. Yeah. Yeah. So I think maybe it's just like strong characterization all the way down. That said, I mean, there's always going to be something about the mechanic in a film where you see what somebody wants to have happen and then what actually happens. And the fact that she plays out how she expects her conversation with her father to go, mm. where she she expects him to lavish praise on her, to listen to her, to appreciate what she's done. And instead, after she plays it all out, it's like a heist movie. If they show you all of the details of how the heist is going to go, you know the heist is going to go wrong. <laughs> right. If they gloss over what the heist is going to be, then you know that it's going to go well because you haven't already seen it all already. And it's the same sort of thing. As soon as she started laying out what she expected that conversation to look like, I was 
It's just like, oh no, this is this is going to go poorly for her. Oh, you sweet summer child. Um, but the fact that she lays out what she wants so nakedly for us, like she gives us access into her fantasy world through this little dialogue that she has with her, the imaginary version of her father. And you can just see how wrong it's going to go from from that moment. I also, while we're talking voices, I want to shout out uh, Simon McBurney for uh, voicing Cromwell. He's a, mm. a very intimidating and patrician and, and cold presence. And a lot of that is in the animation as well in the voice. But uh, I think that the characterization is important. Like he doesn't come across as entirely removed. He certainly has an emotional stake in a lot of the things that are going on. And you can sort of see that he's just a more powerful version of Bill. You can kind of imagine a version of this story where if he had the right connections to the world, if he had people that he cares about the way Bill cares about Robin, maybe he could be brought back from the edge too. He's strained, he's under stress, he's disappointed by the way everybody keeps failing him. But at the same time, he just, he reminded me so much of a Governor Ratcliffe in Pocahontas, Mm -hmm. voiced by David Ogden Stiers. Like, visually, he's perceived very, very much uh, the same kind of way. And in terms of his like vocal characterization and his role in the story, particularly in terms of his constant insistence that they need to bring the wilds under control, just really, again, it felt reminiscent of a film that I'd already seen, but not at all in a bad way. It actually felt like it was kind of iterating on it in a way that felt a little more sophisticated and a, a little more tied to actual human history, as opposed to this other film that was sort of pretending to be tied to history, but <laughs> was, uh, it was kind of inventing an awful lot of it. I think there's limits to how f- much you can make Oliver Cromwell sympathetic, uh, particularly in an <laughs> Irish story. Yeah. <laughs> well, that's certainly true. But I, at the same time, this is not a very historical Oliver Cromwell, unless I misremember my history about uh, how Oliver Cromwell met his end. Uh, indeed, <laughs> I believe it was. Uh, I believe it was uh, kidney stones or something. It's like a little more <laughs> mundane than that. <laughs> yeah, uh, this version of Cromwell also reminded me of a fair bit of Frollo in the Disney Hunchback of Notre Dame. The big mystery of this movie for me is how he spoilers if you haven't seen the movie how he you know it's pretty clearly led up to you you know that it's coming but there is the question of how he was able to get a hold of Maeve's mother in the first place and what he expected to do with her we never see them interact before the big climax so we don't know if he was having conversations with her if if he understood what she was or if he was trying to tame her like a wild animal we don't really know either how that came about or what his intentions were. It's all sort of a big, strange mystery. But there is that sort of sense, I think, of uh, what we get in Hunchback of Notre Dame, that's he's attracted to and repulsed by the thing at the same time. Like He needs to own it and control it so he can seize control of the compulsions that have taken him. And he feels himself above everyone around him and above their base human wants and needs. But at the same time, he's giving into this kind of secret passion on his own. That's the secret that he's holding from everybody until he can't hold it in anymore. It's not entirely unlike the myth of the Selkie and the man stealing her skin and keeping her from 
changing back. Yeah, it's all, as the the Simpsons would say, a rich tapestry, but (laughs) specifically a rich tapestry of very interrelated uh, folklore, thematically and conceptually, which I think gives us a really good in to bring Secret of Rowan Inish into the conversation and kind of talk about how these two films use some very similar mythology, some very similar folklore, and some very similar ideas about uh, man versus nature and man versus himself. So we'll be right back after this break to talk about the connections between Wolfwalkers and The Secret of Rowan Inish. Don't kill me. Ha! I do what I like. Come here. You're, you're a... Uh, uh, Wolfwalker. So what? You should thank me. Why? I saved your life. Saved me? You bit me. Well, you kicked me in the gob enough times. Well, you were attacking me. I was trying to get you out of that trap. And anyway, you came into my woods. Your woods? They're our woods. Your wolves are attacking the woodcutters and the sheep. They should be staying closer to the town. And so should you, townie. Now give us a look at you. Are you seeing things? Oh, get off me. Use your smell. Oh, stop it. Smells oh. like townie. Any extra fur? Oh, that's mine. Get away. No. Stop moving and let me fix it before it's too late. Hey, get off me. Will you stop? Let me fix it. Ugh. Fine. Now it's time for connections when we bring these two films together and talk about all the things they have in common. Uh, which in this case is a lot, but we we can start with the big one, which is people turning into animals, animals turning into people. This the whole folklore Boys becoming myth. men, men becoming wolves. <laughs> <laughs> there's a there's just a, there's a very big fantasy streak going back to some of the oldest fables and uh, continuing forward into some of the most recently written fantasy novels. It's just an obsession uh, that people have the idea of being able to take on animal form and get closer to nature that way or to get access to powers that you wouldn't otherwise have that way. And here it's in both of these films, there's sort of a uh, an excitement about it and a, a responsibility about it. There's a sense of like loss and mourning. There's a sense of becoming an animal being something that maybe takes you over whether you want it or not. There's kind of a fear of uh, living in nature. There's a fear of coming back out of nature. Like all of these things are, are mysteries in the, the most religious sense, these kind of uh, deep, dark, primal things that take a lot of unpacking to understand. So uh, I'm curious how you take the connection between these two films in terms of the very different ways they use shape-shifting myths and uh, animal people. Well, I think the connection is you, with both of them, you have to get right with the animals to symbolize you're your getting right with nature itself and, and the place in which you want to live. Um, and with, unless you can um, find that kind of balance, then you don't really belong there. And especially if you are drawing your way of life from nature, you know, like Selkies are a myth in sea communities, the, you know, fishing communities, people who depend on the sea and and wolf walkers, it's less that they're depending on nature than that they're kind of, I guess, afraid of it or needing to, you know, um, crush it into submission. But there is, in both cases, the shape changers seem very tied to the human way of life that's being examined. And it wasn't that clear to me in Rowan Inish what the hierarchy was as far as selkies and seals go, because like in wolf walkers, the wolf walkers are something 
both of and a little separate from plain old wolves. Obviously, they can turn into humans, but there's also these powers, and they're sort of like the leader of the pack, uh, so, so to speak. And in Rowaninish, it's not really clear how Selkies differ from regular seals, how they relate to regular seals. They're more mysterious, I guess, and a little more remote. I mean, wolves just, I think, by nature are more, I mean, they're pack animals, you know, and I guess seals are too, but I think we just kind of have association with wolves as being more of a communal type of animal than uh, seals, or maybe that's just a bias I have against seals coming out. But mm, this is this is the ugly side of you that we've never seen before coming out of this podcast. <laughs> Anti-seal I mean, sentiment. Yeah. I think seals, I could be wrong here, but I think they're kind of mean, right? They're They're like aggressive. Maybe I'm thinking of sea lions. So a kiss from a rose did nothing for you? Is that <laughs> <laughs> I did enjoy Seal's performance in Popstar. Um, yeah, that was delightful. <laughs> and also uh, his interaction with wolves, I think, in that, uh, That's that right. particular movie. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> we get to find out how Seal's it and wolves interact. Back. Oh, my God. How do we? Popstar. We, we didn't bring Popstar <laughs> in again. We should have redone Popstar. <laughs> But yeah, as far as, as the connection goes, I think Wolfwalkers gives us a little more of a story behind the shapeshifters and like what they are specifically. Uh, Selkies and Rowaninish are just a lot more, you know, mysterious and remote. There's also just the feeling in Wolfwalkers. It's very easy to cross that line. The time elapsed between Robin being bitten and changing is relatively small, and the time lapse between her father being bitten and changing is even smaller. Mm. And they just readily cross over into this natural world where they're given effectively the powers that they need to survive, the powers that they need to change the world into what they want it to be. It's everything that John Sales was specifically rallying against with Roninish. Whereas with Rowan Inish, Jamie doesn't seem to have the option to become a seal. He can live with them and live among them. And as we say, look healthy and, and well cared for and uh, potentially well loved. But there's always a sense that he's other. Mm-hmm. You know, he can't just swim around the way they do. He needs a little boat. He can't just, you know, fish for himself. He needs to be supported. There's a sense that he's outside them and like even living in and among them in a very raised by wolves kind of scenario. He's not exactly of them. And ultimately, they know it. They may steal him away because they recognize that he has their blood, but eventually they give him back because they want him to be with his own kind. Whereas Wolfwalkers is about leaving your own kind and and going off and finding a a better, more Mm. natural kind. Going back to the old traditions in the same sort of way, like abandoning the parts of civilization. It's the, it's the difference between abandoning the parts of civilization that might make you too comfortable in Rowan Inish and abandoning all of the parts of civilization that made you uncomfortable in Wolfwalkers. But I think there there is a thing with both of these films, though, where ultimately they're celebrations of uh, continuity between humans and nature of, of, of being and generations. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just uh, uh, you know, and, and a resolution coming from not resisting that relationship, uh, uh, having that relationship be a natural and healthy, and life-sustaining thing, even in fairly harsh conditions. I mean, both films end with the 
characters in the harshest possible setting and uh, on the island of Roninish where there really isn't much going on and in the middle of this forest uh, away from civilization um so i mean they have uh, that cool carriage that they're, they're that is true the very know? end the very yeah. end they they do have it looks a cool pretty carriage. nice actually <laughs> no that yeah yeah but i mean that's the i guess that but that's the reward i mean that's the reward of you know accepting and not resisting this relationship um between uh you know, humans and nature and how, and how one can kind of bleed into the other in a very harmonious way. That said, it, it does seem a little easy, almost a little facile that becoming a wolf walker is just a strict upgrade. Uh, you don't have to give up being human. You don't have to give up living in a town if you want to live in a town. You just get all of these additional new awesome powers and uh, capacity and, you know, your own wolf pack to do your bidding and your own wolf walker pack to hang out with. Like, there's no visible downside except certain evil people being evil to you. And like the rest of us have to contend with that as well. There is a there's a downside because I mean, look at Maeve's mom. I mean, she's separated from her body, I guess. Like she's removed. You know, you, you can get kind of like discombobulated when robin is a wolf then she is virtually i guess sleeping <laughs> as, a, as a human but not present so uh you know it can it can there's some i mean most pitfalls. of us are not very present when we're asleep <laughs> no but if there are pitfalls you can't wake her up you couldn't wake you couldn't wake up robin at that point and, and Maeve can't wake up her mom when she's uh as out as a wolf yeah. Mm, I don't know. I consider uh, not waking up when you're asleep to be a, a pretty minimal downside to effectively a superpower. I think Scott's saying it's more like a coma. Yeah, it is. <laughs> it is like a coma. I mean, if you can't, if someone cannot be woken up, that is an alarming situation. Hmm. They might be dead. They might be dead or in a coma. Mm. Well, speaking of dead moms. <laughs> <laughs> In both cases, we are dealing with, you know, young girls with mothers who have died and fathers who are, you know, present to different degrees, but certainly not there for the girls the way that they need them to be. And, you know, uh, family separation in general kind of runs through both of these films. But I, I, I would say in different ways, especially as they apply to fathers or maybe with Rowan and Ish, we should expand it to be father figures and talk about her grandfather, who we didn't really get into much in our in our original conversation. But I think he kind of fills the uh, skeptical dad role. Yeah, very much so. Eh? One of the big kind of conjunctions that I saw between these two films is that effectively it's about parents trying to hold back children who are in many ways wiser than they are, who are out there trying to connect with nature and do the things that they need to, to do that the things that need to be done for the benefit of other children. And in both cases, you've got, you've got the father in Wolfwalkers and the grandfather in Rowan Inish just over and over and over trying to reel them back into a form of safety. That's also a form of control. Um, the version in Wolfwalkers is more extreme. Uh, the grandfather doesn't want to shut up uh Fiona in a in a scullery. They keep referring to it as a scullery, and he like he doesn't want that for her. But he also doesn't want her out on boats. He doesn't want her off the island. He doesn't want her on Roaninish. He doesn't want her going places with Amon. There's just a whole lot of uh, feeling of it would be much safer if you stayed quietly indoors at home at all times. And the loss of Jamie, I think, influenced that. Like the fear of 
having small children getting too near the sea and the, the knowledge of all of the things the sea takes may be part of that paranoia. But uh, even though in Rowan Inish, the problem is a father, a single father under parenting a child, and in Wolf Walkers, it's a single father over parenting a child, the dynamic of safety equals control equals don't go have adventures and do the things the film wants you to do. I, I think that comparison becomes very interesting. One thing I would say about the children here, about Fiona and about uh, Robin, is that it's not so much that they possess wisdom, but they uh, that their parents don't have or their watchers don't have, but that they have uh, imagination. They have the imagination to believe the impossible is possible. Like, mm-hmm. like you know, Jamie has the imagination to believe that her brother is still alive, uh, which is something that a rational grown-up you know, even one as connected to myth as deeply as his family is, can scarcely believe, you know, this far down the line. In Wolfwalkers, it's the same kind of thing. It's just, it's a child who, uh, you know, it, it has a more creative impulse or, you know, or she's more free-spirited and, and can accept the thing, accepts freely the things that, that happen to her. Um, and so that's kind of like, that's kind of what separates children from adults of these two movies and maybe in in actual real life as well. Yeah, you're kind of uh, wandering into another one of our connections. But before we uh, leave this one, in terms of sort of the skeptical adult figure, I want to note one of the most uh, surprising and kind of funny moments in Rowan Inish, which is when her grandmother just unexpectedly <laughs> accepts that oh okay jamie's jamie's there let's go mm-hmm. <laughs> you know like no, no resistance at all and i don't think you realize up until that point that we've been getting all of this pushback from the grandfather and sort of the way that the grandmother is presented to us you expect her to be you know aligned with him there but you know, I think that moment suggests that she just has such a strong desire to see Jamie reunited with the family that it overrides any sort of, of skepticism she may have held. Does it bother anybody that it doesn't sound like there's any particular effort underway to let Fiona's dad know that they've they've recovered his son? <laughs> like I, I know I know it's early days uh, and they're they're still adjusting to it. It's it's only just happened, but I, I mean, it's not like they have phones him. out on Rowanish, Rowan Rowan Inish. I think it implies from the start that he's taken himself out of the picture; that he's not going to be her father anymore. Sure, I agree with that. But I mean, I would assume that one of the reasons that he's he's fallen into the bottle is because of the monumental series of losses that he's mm. endured. And maybe uh, finding out that Jamie's still out there and alive would be good for him. Maybe somebody putting in the effort to help him get past his grief, like helping him process his losses and and mourn, as opposed to just saying like, okay, yeah, well, you're you're not a dad anymore. We're cutting you loose and we're going to go have seal adventures. I'd like just the slightest uh, bit of compassion for him. They're saving all that for the sequel, Return to Rowan Inish. <laughs> <laughs> not gonna lie would watch i'm not gonna claim any sort of great historical knowledge or deep historical knowledge but i think another connection of course is we've touched on before is colonialism and there's a couple of ways in which these films overlap where you get um obviously very explicit early days british colonialism 
in Wolfwalkers coming in and, and you know, asserting control and in try in asserting an English way of doing things, uh, right down to language. And you get that a, a little more, it's a little more in the background in Secret of Rowan and Nish, but, the, but also you get the, the flashback scene where, where the kids are being taught English and some of them want to keep speaking Irish. So, you know, it, it, it is a case where another culture has come in and imposed its way of doing things right down to the level of language, but beneath the surface, that language has lived on. And, and that's something that you'll find that in Ireland too, where there are now, uh, the government has implemented programs to keep the, the language alive. And you can, you know, you can go there and watch uh, cartoons dubbed into Irish, which is a, which is a fun thing to do if, if you're, if you're in Ireland, but um, there's definitely effort now being taken to preserve that culture. That w- at the time of particularly uh, particularly of Wolfwalkers, it's 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 all about someone else suppressing that culture. Yeah, the kind of the specter of English control and uh, English evil really is is pretty heavy, pretty heavy handed in both of these films. In Roninish, it doesn't really affect the present so much as it's irrevocably altered the past. And in Wolfwalkers, it's it's front and center and a major part of the plot. But, you know, both of these films, I think it's it's hard to tell a truthful Irish story without in some ways coming to terms with the, the degree to which the Irish diaspora was brought into being by the colonial control of, uh, of Ireland. There's, these are two Irish stories with relatively happy endings, which I think kind of sets them apart from a lot of Irish stories. <laughs> and also in very, very different eras and that have very different ideas of kind of what happy endings mean. Mm. Yes. Yeah, so one point I wanted to bring up as a connection that's more of a place of contrast is the difference between you know hard work and magic in terms of where these films wind up i think one thing the secret of ron inish has going for it is an understanding that the life that these people live is difficult and austere and full of hard work of fishing and gutting fish and uh you know as i, as I was sort of joking during the ron inish episode they, they they almost feel like the place they're in is uh not harsh enough that they need to go to a place that's even more the, the way more isolated place that they uh, uh once once lived they're true they were their their truest self and so and, and that's something that is sort of embraced in that in Roninish. whereas in, in in wolfwalkers it's all about kind of casting off these harsh things uh casting off a civilization that feels uh, like a prison oppressive and being able to get to a place at the end where who knows where they're going, but everyone looks very happy and everything is lush and, uh, and they're, they're one with nature and, and, and work, the notion of work is not a driving force anymore, especially for somebody like Robin's father who, who, who spends most of the film, you know, wearily, following a sense of duty um that involves uh you know a lot of violence and oppression uh, he gets to cast that off and, and then becomes what you know it, it's all about you know it's all about magic and freedom and, and happiness and the work part is kind of left behind i would say one difference there that's kind of significant is that in wolf walkers society is making an active attempt to keep them or kill them and in Rowan Inish, society seems pretty indifferent to them. Society is done with them. Um, they're being cast off because they have no place in this brave new world where people 
want vacation homes on the Irish coast, hmm. apparently. Uh, so it feels, with Rowan Inish, it feels less like shucking off civilization, like fighting your way away from civilization, and more just like relaxing into where you actually belong and where you want to be. And there's certainly a sense of hard work ahead, but there's also a sense that, well, you know, maybe we don't need to pretend nearly as much anymore. I think that that is uh, common to both of these films. And I think if you think about it, there's going to be just as much work in Wolfwalkers in terms of uh, basic survival. Like, they're still going to need to hunt. They're going to probably need to, unless they find themselves another gigantic, spectacular uh, <laughs> cave covered with amazing wolf drawings, they're going to and have to- And a waterfall. To, <laughs> and a waterfall. They're going to have to make a home someplace else. You know, they're all of the, the usual base considerations of what do you eat, what do you wear, how do you shelter yourself are still present in Wolfwalkers. They're just kind of not what the focus is. Is. I think it's interesting that in Rowan Inish, when John Sales talks about putting in the hard work, what he specifically means is putting in the mundane work, putting in the, the boring day-to-day sweep the floor, uh, whitewash the buildings, uh, cut the sod, hang the roof, like all of that kind of stuff, which is not very rewarding. There is an awful lot of work done to escape society in Wolfwalkers, and it mostly comes with Robin physically putting her body on the line, you know, getting in between bullets and people who are currently helpless. Like she, she does the hard work. It's just magical and exciting, like thrilling, action-y yeah, work. I can say, maybe I just associate work with like labor. Well, jobs. I mean, and we we do see Robin doing uh, some of that during the when she's in the scullery, you know, just doing some very uh, Rowaninish time of labor, you know, and uh, it's interesting, and I guess maybe another point of contrast that you know that film associates that sort of labor with being trapped, with being confined, with uh, by civilization, and in uh, Rowaninish, it is a means by which to regain freedom. Well, I. I think I'm going to uh, declare that we have the freedom to walk away from this conversation and into the further conversations that we still need to have, because we've been talking about all of this for quite a while. And we could be walking through the the beautiful woods or sitting by the sea instead. We should all just uh, take this time to get back to nature. The Secret of Roninish is widely rentable on digital platforms, and it's streaming free on Canopy and Hoopla, Tubi TV, and it's on Amazon Prime Video for subscribers. The film was recently restored in uh, 2020, and the Amazon Prime version, at least, is a, a beautiful new restoration. We're assuming that it's the same version on all of these other services, but uh, I have to admit we have not checked to be sure. Regardless, it's available on DVD as well. Wolfwalkers is currently an exclusive on Apple TV+. Here's hoping that it comes to some form of uh, physical media so people don't have to subscribe to the service forever in order to get access to it. Ted Lasso! There is good stuff on there, but, uh, you know, this is this is the kind of film that people may want to watch over and over and over without, like, necessarily marrying themselves to a mm. streaming service for life for. Boy State! Uh, <laughs> Beastie Boy Story! <laughs> On the rocks. <laughs> this what episode brought to you by Apple TV Plus. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Like, where's where's my cut of all of this free advertising? Uh, we'll be right back with your next picture show. Finally. 
finally, it's time to catch each other up on films or film-related items we recommend, particularly in this age of widely available digital media that we all need to catch up on. We call it Your Next Picture Show in the hopes that it'll put some interesting choices on your radar. Genevieve, what in the film world is good for you right now? Well, I'll get to what's good for me right now. But before that, I just want to reiterate once again that if you haven't seen Cartoon Saloon's other animated features, The Secret of Kells, Song of the Sea, and The Breadwinner, they are all very much worth checking out. So I'll just leave it there. (laughs) If you want to hear me talk more about The Breadwinner, go back in the archive. I don't remember when I suggested it, but um, I talked more about it there. Which one's your favorite of the three What's uh, in terms of like, what's the good entry point? Uh, Oh, I like them all... It's maybe recency bias that's making me say Wolfwalkers, but also The Breadwinner is kind of different. It's the only one of the four that was directed by Nora Toomey, and it is a very different sort of story. It's a little more adult. So I might I might say that just, uh, I don't know, start with the outlier there. But um, it's... I mean, I, I think Wolfwalkers is the most sophisticated and complete film out mm-hmm. of uh, Cartoon Saloon so far. But if you're talking about recommendations that aren't the film that we just finished discussing, we, we've got to bring up Song of the Sea, which right. is about Selkies again. Yes. <laughs> um, and also is just... Uh, again visually transformative mm-hmm. on a level i i have rarely seen in animation yeah. um and it's it was readily available on netflix last i checked so cool. barrier to entry very low i think secret of kells is also on, on netflix it's I, I can't pick a favorite <laughs> i love them all <laughs> Just curious. yeah but uh for my actual recommendation i'm going to recommend something completely different uh that was uh brought up by scott uh recently when he did his 2020 checklist uh and that film is uh, sound of metal written and directed by darius Martyr and starring an incredible Riz Ahmed as a heavy metal drummer who loses his hearing suddenly. He was struck deaf, and the story kind of follows him as he adjusts to his new reality or doesn't, uh, as, as the case may be. Um, he is also a recovering addict, which uh, kind of further complicates how he processes this uh, traumatic event in his life. All of that is like very dramatic and well-rendered by Riz Ahmed, but the sequence early in the film where he is actually losing his hearing is one of the scariest things <laughs> I experienced on film this year. Like It is so anxiety-provoking, and the way that that the sound design is handled in this film to sort of evoke what's happening to him and how disoriented it would be is really impressive and kind of unexpected because like it puts you in his head but it also switches back and forth between hearing and not essentially and the way the silence of his deafness is designed is very interesting but as it's sort of like becoming a reality in the film it's really just incredibly alarming (laughs) you know and I was I have to admit I wasn't sure if I wanted to keep going past that point because it was so anxiety inducing in me but the film does kind of move into this different space once his hearing has gone and it's really carried by Ahmed's performance which is big-ish but not distractingly so he has to convey a lot and he does it well without being Uh, showy about it. His performance is probably the reason to see this film, certainly to stick with this film if you are so uh, kind of uh, thrown off guard by the early, by the first third the way I was. But it really came together in a satisfying and uh, emotional way for me at the end. So I would definitely recommend Sound of Metal. Yeah, glad you liked it. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, I I saw it at Toronto back in the uh, 
before times <laughs> and seeing that in, in a theater the sound that that sequence you're talking about, about of him him losing his sound just the way sound is handled in the film in general really comes through in a, in a viscerally powerful way i mean the film just has a it kind of goes for it on a, in a yeah. big way i mean it's a long film it's a it's, it's a longer film than you expect and it, it seems to me it's only two hours deep, what's that it's only two hours i thought it was a solidly over i don't know maybe there was a longer cut when you oh, saw it but the, so. the the one that's on amazon prime is is only two hours oh, okay i, I think yeah. maybe i did see a, maybe a, a longer cut because it was it was kind of a i think it, well, there were some eyebrows raised at the length of the film but um, just an example any- of prime getting stuff to you faster than you than you, than you even expect <laughs> This episode also brought to you by Amazon Prime. <laughs> in any case, it does feel thoroughly examined, both both in the it's just in the world of the deaf and how you know just give you a sense of of what that community is like, which is unusual to see, and uh, and as a story of addiction, also very affecting. So uh, I'm, glad, I'm glad you glad you liked it. And it uses the the tools of cinema very effectively. Very much so. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Scott, what's good for you right now? I've seen so many films lately because I'm trying to do that. End show of the year off. thing or just see a bunch of stuff <laughs> i'm being a show i'd be a show off that's right so there's a ton of films that i could recommend and if you follow you know my letterbox i guess you can probably see all the stuff i've been been watching lately but i wanted to kind of throw a special uh, shout out to the uh, romanian documentary collective um, which you can find um, on any of your rental services at this point it's a magnolia picture uh, usually magnolia films are uh, find their way onto uh, I think it's net I think Netflix or Hulu one of those two has a relationship with with Magnolia so we'll find it w- its way on there eventually. In any case, Collective is this really stunning film about journalism, politics, and uh, corruption, and it's it's it, it basically starts with a fire, a club fire that um, that kills a lot of people, and then it and then there are people who survive the fire who die later on who who died later on i should say these are actual humans in the hospital and there are a lot of questions raised as to why people who could have been saved survivors of the fire died in the hospital and it has to do with a much deeper scandal involving uh the creator of the of the uh disinfectants for the hospital you know not giving you know the supply being inadequate and people being aware of it on very high levels of both within the romanian healthcare system and within the romanian government and it all had to do with this big corporate scandal that is exposed by uh a romanian you know sports <laughs> publication of all of all things you know it's a riveting film about about journalism and the importance of journalism and 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 about holes that can be exposed within a government and a, and a healthcare system that doesn't have ordinary citizens in mind i think uh, americans will find it resonant at this time in our history as well a government that is so riddled by corruption and incompetence that people are dying uh that don't need to be dying i think i think people could connect with that theme quite strongly it's called collective it's it's a wonderful documentary from romania and uh, yeah check it out sounds like a romp <laughs> it, it is. It's kind of gripping, believe it or not. I mean, it sounds really bleak, but you know, it sounds actually like the death of Mr. Lazarescu, which is really bleak. Uh, you talk about ro- classic, you know, great new Romanian cinema, but it, it's not. It's actually quite rousing um, because you really, you kind of, if you're an aspiring journalist, you know, you, you may 
be kind of pumped up by it because there are protests in which the journalist who broke the story has his name like chanted by the crowd. So, uh, so imagine that if you're a crusading uh, journalist, if you've broken a story that's so great that uh, people are chanting your name on the streets. It's pretty good. All right, I'll, I'll pull us out with my recommendation here. Yeah, that was pretty bleak, but I don't recommend a horror film expired by watching someone descend into dementia. Uh, it's called. Um, it's actually a really great film called Relic from Australia. It's the first film directed by Natalie Erica James, which she co-wrote with Christian White, and it stars from youngest to oldest Bella Heathcote, Emily Mortimer, and Robin Nevin as three generations of women. M, uh, Mortimer and, and Heathcote play mother and daughter who go to the uh, the matriarch's house, uh, the Mortimer's mother's house, uh, and and Heathcote's grandmother's house. I'm trying to make this sound less awkward. It's not working. Uh, but they go to her house because she's gone missing. And um, what they find there is, is a place that's fallen in disrepair uh, with some sort of strange mold growing on it and, and post-it notes that remind her what she needs to do. And basically... I mean, I almost to call it a horror movie is accurate, but it's almost more like more like a magical realism drama in some ways about the experiences of dementia. It was inspired by by James's um, own experience with her grandmother. It's, it's very e- eerie and upsetting and disturbing, but also um, true to the experience, frankly, and and also by the end quite moving and humane. Uh, it, it sounds like an unpleasant. Uh, topic um, to deal with in a film, but I think it's a case where a genre film can kind of take you to places that you might not want to visit in, in a straight drama. Um, I, I highly recommend it. It is on; it's just on VOD services now, but it's worth your uh, three ninety nine or whatever you pay to rent a movie. Yeah, Elson, wow. Elson Wilmore is a big fan of that one too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she's right. That's fascinating. I am. I'm very used to uh, disagreeing with uh, Scott about films, but it's it's rare that we really come to loggerheads. I, yeah, the ending, I, barely, I barely remember you not liking this film. So tell me why. The, it was the ending of the movie uh, infuriated me. Really? Um, I thought it was. I, I thought it was lovely. Actually. Oh wow! Yeah. I I found it facile and insulting mm. um, to <laughs> the 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 people of it. It's kind of trying to. I, the the idea of basically humanizing people who are already human um, to me felt kind of insulting. Mm, okay, okay, I, I have a different take on it, but there's no way to get into it without spoiling uh, everything. But uh, um, I think that you're right that it is in some ways um, horrifically accurate to the experience, and I think in uh, other ways it's just kind of a crackerjack horror film. Like the the sequences in the interior of the house mm-hmm. with Bella Heathcote are uh, pretty mesmerizing and and pretty scary. It did feel in some ways a little too stolen from the Babadook for me. There's, and, a lot of, there's a lot of Babadook in it. There's a lot of the others in it as, as well. And, and Hereditary, uh, for sure. Yeah, for certain. It certainly has that, that sort of distant, uh, eerie, uh, foreboding quality that, that all those films share. But I think it's its own thing in, in, in ways that, that work for me. Yeah, it's certainly not a, a poorly made film. I I personally feel that the kind of the moral place that it's going to is not for me for a lot of reasons um but i certainly can't uh i can't ding the filmmaking or the the acting it is a very well put together movie all told i will say the ultimate moral point it, it comes to is basically it's death and decay come for all of us um and uh so the, and, you know that in kind of living learning to live with that and accept it in your and others and yourself is is uh, is a kind of a necessity if you're going to to stick around but uh but we saw it differently apparently yeah, I mean, I think that those are all very good morals to to have. It's not how I read the movie. 
So I'm going to try to take your interpretation, which I think is both uh, more generous and would definitely give you a, a bigger appreciation of that film. Thank you, Tasha. Let's go. <laughs> what about you, Tasha? <laughs> well, uh, to heck with the end of year, um, like binge watching yeah, catch up game. I'm, I'm going to go back to uh, the olden days. When we were talking about what to pair with Wolf Walkers, and we we talked about Rowan Inish, there was another film on my mind that came two years before Rowan Inish, and is so like it in so many different ways, and I think actually a better movie than Rowan Inish, but it doesn't have the shape changer angle, which really like made Rowan Inish the, the slam dunk here. Uh, Mike Newell's Into the West came out in 1992, and Genevieve kind of touched in passing on the the tradition of Irish travelers and kind of the uh, the place that they have or haven't had in Irish society. Into the West is expressly about two children whose father is the king of the travelers. And like the father in Rowan Inish, he's recently lost his wife and he's having difficulty navigating that. He's having uh, big emotional difficulties. When I said that I wished Rowan Inish had a little bit more space for the father, a little bit more sympathy for him as a human being, in part, I was thinking about how much Into the West looks kind of mercilessly at the father who would emotionally abandon his kids in order to fall into his own grief, and at the same time, finds sympathy for him and finds redemption for him. The story is about his two children who they come into contact with a, a white horse. One could say it's a magical horse, but it's not a magical horse in a like a fantasy film kind of sense, much more an old Irish folklore tradition kind of sense. And when the horse is taken away from them in a very uh, black stallion kind of way, they steal it and they go off on a journey. It shares so many elements with Rowan Inish. It, it's it's fundamentally about storytelling. It's fundamentally about uh, old Irish tradition and uh, about escape and about control and about nature and the wild and about uh, like the the oldest legends and what we get out of them. Why we tell these stories to each other over and over. It makes a terrific double feature with Rowan Inish. But I also just remember being blown away by the acting in it. Um, Gabriel Byrne stars as the father, but the boys that play his two little kids are just spectacular. And this film came along in uh, just a wave of cinema coming out of Ireland. It was uh, around the same time as movies like In the Name of the Father and The Crying Game and, and My Left Foot. There was just sort of a, a wave of new films that had stories about Ireland. But this was the one that spoke kind of most emotionally to me, most personally to me. Maybe because it's so much about myths and folklore, while still being a very John Sayles style movie that's fundamentally about people and how they interact with each other and about communities and how they abandon people or pull together around people and how much of a difference it makes which kind of choices people make. So I, I looked it up. I was really planning to come into this to talk about it. And then I thought, wait, what is it even available? Rowan Inish was kind of difficult to find for a while. For whatever reason, and it's on Vudu. Uh, it's on a Vudu hmm. in an ad-supported form, in a rental form, or a purchase form, and that seems to be the only place you can get it. Uh, but it is actually <laughs> Thank you, out there. Walmart. <laughs> and if you if you like Rowan Inish and you want to see the the slightly better version of it, yeah, uh, Into the West makes a, a terrific pairing with it. Yeah, I have fond memories of it. I, I remember it being good. 
<laughs> but but I but I have not I've not revisited it since. So uh, my memory of it is virtually non-existent. But I'm anxious to check it out again. Well, you can. Thanks to Voodoo. This uh, episode also brought to you by Voodoo, the Wait, streaming what? service we, that we haven't mentioned up until now. Wait, hold on. What's good about Crackle? Let's find something good to say about Crackle. <laughs> That's it for this edition of the Next Picture Show. These are our last regular episodes of 2020, so goodbye to this garbage year, and hello to the next garbage year to come. Our next pairing will come in January, when we'll be talking about the new Pixar movie Soul on Disney+, paired with Pressburger and Powell's A Matter of Life and Death. But that's getting ahead of ourselves. Scott, you want to tell us about the very special episode coming up next week? Yes. Well, if you're like us, you've spent the majority of the year 2020 indoors, away from movie theaters to stay safe from the coronavirus. And because of the pandemic, a lot of films have been dumped to streaming services or pushed to 2021 altogether. But that doesn't mean that this hasn't been another exciting year for movies. Next week, on a special episode of The Next Picture Show, we'll talk about what movie going was like in 2020 share some of our favorites, and bring in some hidden gems from other critics who have guested on the show. Hopefully, we'll give you plenty of good places to start for your year-end list, too. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your feedback on this week's discussion of Wolfwalkers, The Secret of Rowan Inish, and anything else film-related you'd like to talk about. We want to include your thoughts on future episodes of the show. You can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net. Finally, before closing out this week's episode, where can we find everyone these days? Keith. Oh, I'm a freelance writer. I'm all over the place. You can find me on Twitter at KFIP3000. I post my clips there. Uh, you can find my writing in places like The Ringer, GQ, Vulture, Polygon, Rolling Stone, Mel, TV Guide, others I'm sure I'm forgetting. Uh, you know, I write all over the place. Scott, how about you? Uh, yeah, so uh, you can find me on Twitter at scott underscore tobias you can find my work at the new york times uh guardian uh, the ringer vulture and other fine publications i'm also the editor of a of a soon to be revived oscilloscope musings blog so i'm kind of excited Yay. about that uh what it's a 2020 about miracle <laughs> it is uh, what about you genevieve uh, i am the deputy tv editor at vulture.com and you can find me sporadically tweeting at genevieve kosky tasha I am the film and TV editor at Polygon.com. You can find me on Twitter at Tasha Robinson. You can stay updated on The Next Picture Show by visiting nextpictureshow.net, via Twitter at nextpicturepod, and via Facebook at facebook.com slash nextpictureshow. You can always contribute to our Patreon and get bonus content at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. And if you haven't subscribed to the show on Apple Podcasts already, why the heck not? Have you been listening? Do you even make it this far into the podcast? What's wrong with you? <laughs> Do you not love us? We want so badly to be loved. Fine, we're just going to turn into animals and go off into the wilderness. Apple Podcast subscriptions are an important part of getting podcasts more prominence and more listeners. While you're there, we appreciate every rating and review. Every thumbs up helps us find new listeners. Every acknowledgement that we exist helps us keep going. <laughs> Thanks to Dan the Big Jakes for his assistance in producing this podcast. The Next Picture Show is proud to be part of the Film Spouting family of podcasts. Please tune in next time. Love.